Well, let's pray as we now uh, prepare to open God's word together. God, we thank you for the opportunity to gather this morning and to uh, celebrate who you are and all that you've done for us through your son, Jesus. We thank you for the chance to uh, lift up our voices in, in song. Thank you for the opportunity to pray together. and Thank you for the opportunity right now that our, our younger ones have to uh, learn about you and to do activities to, to reinforce the message of what it means that Jesus has come into the world. We pray for our time together uh, as a church family this morning. As we open your word, may you uh, use it to show us the, the gravity, the weight, the glory of what Christmas uh, is all about so that we would uh, be changed, transformed, not just coming and, and coming to another service, but that you would transform us through uh, the power of your word, by the power of your spirit. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, well, Christmas uh, can change your life. Uh, that's what we see in one of the very first uh, Christmas classics, Charles Dickens' uh, Christmas Carol. And the central figure of that is a man named Ebenezer Scrooge, and he is the prototype of a miser. Dickens describes him like this. He is a squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner. Uh, not exactly what you want on your gravestone, I don't think. Um, but Scrooge is clearly a, a heartless person. And so as Christmas comes along and everyone else is preparing to gather together with their loved ones and to celebrate with great joy, he is not happy about this because for him, the only thing that Christmas is, is a disruption in his previously scheduled making of lots of money because that's what he's about. His one true love is making more money. But something happens to Ebenezer Scrooge one Christmas. Uh, he is visited by the ghost of Jacob Marley, his previous business partner who is deceased. And Marley warns him of the terrible, miserable afterlife that he's going to have if he continues on this course of greed and selfishness. And he is going to be visited by three different spirits that will give him a chance to repent. And that's what happens. First, it's the ghost of Christmas past. And so Scrooge sees visions of his childhood. He sees that he wasn't always this miserly, greedy old man. And then he sees the progression of his life and how he got to be the person that he is today. And then he sees the, the ghost of Christmas present. And he's taken to see that the joyful scenes of people celebrating Christmas. But then he also sees the pain of poverty and being in want. And then he's visited by the last spirit, the, the ghost of Christmas yet to come. And this is the most grim of all because he sees his own death. And he sees that, that his death doesn't bring grief to anybody. His legacy is a neglected tombstone. So basically, the message that he receives on that Christmas Eve is, you are a selfish jerk, and nobody likes you, and no one's going to be sad when you're gone. Now, you can imagine that this, this shakes Scrooge to the core, and, and when he wakes up the next morning and realizes that he gets another chance, he's going to make the most of it. And so he wakes up, and he transforms his life completely. He celebrates Christmas with great joy. He gives generously to others. He treats others with kindness. It's, it's a transformation, a Christmas miracle. Christmas changes his life. 
And this is such a, a widely appealing and a, and a feel-good story that that story has actually never gone out of print in over 150 years since Dickens first wrote it. Christmas can change your life. And that actually remains true today. And the good news for us is that you don't need to have a, a supernatural vision and, and find out how much of a jerk you are for Christmas to actually change your life. Because Christmas, the celebration of Christmas, is, is this supernatural event that makes all the difference in the world for people like you and me. So grab a Bible. We're going to see uh, what we mean by this. So we're going to turn to John chapter 1, verse 14. So if you brought a Bible, that's great. Turn there. Uh, if you didn't, you can borrow one from the chair rack in front of you. And it's found on page 1647 of the church Bible. So John chapter 1 verse 14. As we've been preparing to celebrate Christmas as a church family, uh, we're in a series called The One and Only. And it's all about Jesus. It's about the, the birth of this baby that we celebrate at Christmas, but we're seeing that he's more than just an ordinary baby. He is the eternal word of God, the one through whom everything on this earth has been created, the one who is with God in the very beginning, the one who has life in himself, the one who is the true light of the world. And then we get this verse, chapter 1, verse 14. And this verse is going to show us first this fantastic event that is at the center of our celebration of Christmas. And then it's going to show us the results of that huge event. So let's start by looking at this, this event that's at the center of Christmas. Here's how John describes it. John chapter 1, verse 14, just the first part of that verse. He says, The Word became flesh. And made his dwelling among us. Now, that is this short, simple sentence, but it is packed with meaning. The, the words that are used here have a rich background that show us the immensity of what's being said. Let's make sure we don't miss what John is saying here. So, the word became flesh. Now, word is something that we could easily pass over, but this is the, the Greek uh, logos. It's, it's much more than just our English word, word. For, see, for the, for the Greeks, word, logos, is the, the universal power of reason that governs the entire universe. So it's a big deal for the Greeks. But for the Jews, too, that the word of God is God's powerful self-expression. So God creates by his word. God saves by his word. God reveals by his word. And so as John uses that word, logos, the word to talk about Jesus, he is elevating our conception of who Jesus is. So for him, the Greek background is not primary, and he'll take the Jewish background, but he's going to give it his own definition. The word was in the beginning. The word was with God. The word was God. Everything is created through the word. There's nothing on earth that's created apart from the word. The word is the light of the world, the true light that comes into give life to everyone. So he's, he's basically saying in the outset here that Jesus is the eternal word of God. It's highlighting that Jesus is fully God. That's what John's been saying so far. And then he turns and he says, the word became flesh. Now, that then is a shocking statement in light of everything he said, because flesh is as strong of a word as you can find for being a human, it, it, we, we would have the term flesh and blood. It's the same basic concept. This is about humanity and, and all of our frailty and all of our weakness. Now, for the Greeks, this would be absolutely absurd. The word is this impersonal, supernatural force, and flesh is 
a human body. And for the Greeks, they thought the human body was the problem of our existence. The soul is the good part of us. The body is the bad part. And to say not only the body, but flesh, and that just makes this an absurd statement. But no matter what your background is, this is really difficult. As one pastor puts it, flesh is probably the harshest term for the body. The word fully God became flesh, fully human. Now, this is the kind of thing that it's just astounding. It's hard for us to wrap our minds up. How can, how can that be true? The word became flesh. Our minds are just blown by this. This is beyond our, our ability to comprehend and to fully grasp. But that's what happens at Christmas. God comes to earth. The word became flesh. Fully God became fully human. And not only that, but the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And, and that phrase starts to help us understand what this is all about. I've heard it paraphrased that, that it's like the word moved into the neighborhood. There's a possible Old Testament allusion here too. We can trace this word back to a word for pitching a tent or, or setting up a tabernacle. The, world, the word set up a tabernacle among his people. Now, people familiar with the Bible would immediately think back to the Old Testament where God had them set up a tabernacle and that was the place of his presence among his people. So for John to say that the word tabernacled, made his dwelling, moved into the neighborhood among us is to say that God's presence is here in Jesus, in the word made flesh. So Jesus is bringing God's presence into the world. He's bringing God's revelation to us. And so we start to see that the picture of what's happening here. Now, generations before the birth of Jesus, God spoke through a prophet named Isaiah. And he gave this promise to his people in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. The Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Now, Emmanuel means God with us. So this is a big promise. Now, this is a promise that in the, in the first instance is about Isaiah's day. This is a promise for them. But at the same time, it's a promise that's much too big for just what happens in Isaiah's day. And so we see that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of this promise. Jesus, this baby, is Emmanuel. He is God with us. And that's the point that John is making here. The word, Jesus, who he has so emphatically said is fully God, is also fully human. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. He is God with us. Now we're going to spend some time in a, in a moment here looking at the result of the incarnation, which is the fancy theological word for word became flesh. But it's worth pausing before we do that to uh, reflect for a moment on what it means that Jesus is fully human. So the past couple weeks, we've looked at the, the significance of the fact that Jesus is fully God. This is who he is. But it also matters that he is fully human. Because that means that humanity is truly redeemed. See, Jesus shows us what it means to be human. He is the prototype now for what it means to be a human walking in this world. And that matters because if Jesus just kind of put on a human suit, or if he only looked like he was human, well, then we, won't have, we don't have hope of full redemption. We might get the impression that our bodies, our flesh, 
is the problem. So if we can just get rid of the body, then our soul can be free and kind of reach new heights. And that's kind of what the Greeks thought. The body's the problem, the soul's the good part. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches us that we are embodied creatures. God has created us and he has created us good. The word became flesh and so the word redeems flesh. And this is confirming that the goodness of God's creation and also God's ongoing commitment to the world he made. So our bodies are not the problem. The problem is that we need a rescuer. We need his redemption. And that's what Jesus does. He redeems. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. So Christmas shows us how much God is committed to us and to our good. He doesn't stand back from the world that he created. Instead, the Son of God enters into the world. world. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Now, I saw something recently about the, the struggle that journalists face when they're in difficult parts of the world, whether it's a war-torn area or whether a disaster has hit and they're going into report. So the thing is, a, a journalist's mission is to tell the story, is to report on what's happening. So they don't enter into the story, but instead they write down what they see so the whole world can, can understand what's going on. So their crucial role in the world is to bear witness. This is what's happening. And a lot of good can actually come out of that. They've been able to bring to light terrible abuses that then can be addressed. They uh, fuel global relief efforts in different parts of the world. There's been some really good things that that happened because journalists are there reporting on what happened and in bringing to light what they see. But there's this struggle that, that journalists have. When do you remain an impartial observer writing down the story, telling the story, and when do you need to put down your pen and join in to help. So a a bit over a decade ago, a journalist was in Mexico and she was following this uh, young uh, Honduran boy, this teenager who was on this journey to find his mother. He hadn't seen her in over a decade and he decided that he is going to go find his mother. So she's following around. She's telling his story, not entering in, but just recording, bearing witness to this. And at one point in the story, they're in Mexico City, and she's following him as he's trying to scrape together $10 so that he can buy a phone card and to call his mom, try to make contact with her. And for two weeks, he's traveling around Mexico City trying to scrounge up $10. Now, she's got a cell phone in her bag, but she decides that in order to maintain the integrity of reporting, she's not going to offer that young boy the phone, because she doesn't want to change the story. She doesn't want to enter into it and change the course of his journey, and so she doesn't offer the phone. She just kind of stays back and keeps writing what she sees. Now, I suppose you can kind of give her the benefit of the doubt. She's trying to maintain journalistic objectivity here, but, but I got to tell you, if I'm that teenager, I'm going to be so frustrated with her because I know that she could help me. She could step in and make this right. But for two weeks, I'm going around begging, trying to get enough money just for a phone card when she could have just pulled a phone out of her pocket and I could have made the call immediately. Two weeks of my life wasted because she wasn't willing to step into the story. I was thinking about it. I think, well, thank God that Christmas shows us that God doesn't operate like that. That God is the the opposite of that. He doesn't feel the need to stand back and let his creation kind of do its thing. He's not concerned that that he changed the story. He doesn't think he has to step back to maintain objectivity and and afraid to enter in and to change what's going on here. 
He doesn't have to choose between telling the story and stepping into the story. He doesn't feel the need to maintain distance from the situation. Instead, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. This is such good news for us because it means that that God steps into the picture. He can actually change what is going on here. This is such a good thing for us. The God that we worship is amazing. He doesn't stand back from his creation. He steps in. The word, fully God, became flesh, fully human. So let's look at the result of that. What, What happens as a result of this amazing thing that we celebrate? Look at the second half of verse 14. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. So because of the incarnation, because the word became flesh, now ordinary people like John, who's writing this book down, have seen the glory of the Son of God. They have seen that he is the unique, one and only Son of God. They have seen his glory, and they can report on his glory. Now, glory it is a pretty amazing word. I want to make sure that we don't miss that what glory means. Glory is God showing up in a way that when we experience it, when we see this, we are left in amazement and in awe. So there's a great uh, picture of this in the Old Testament. God is about to give his people the Ten Commandments, these words to live by. And right before that happens, his glory shows up. I want to read for you what that looks like. And and as I do that, I want you to listen to this description and imagine being there among the people for a minute. So listen to this and, and put yourself in their shoes. Here's the scene, Exodus 19. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. And the camp trembled. Verse 18, Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. Can you imagine being there? Just a couple weeks ago, there was this big earthquake in Alaska, 7.0 magnitude. And after watching some of the videos from this, I'm going to show you one of those in a minute here. After seeing some of the videos of this, it's a whole new meeting that the earth was violently shaking. So watch just a couple seconds of this clip here and imagine what it would be like to, to be there. So this is a nanny cam kind of showing what's happening. So that's just a tiny little picture. That's just one earthquake. But imagine, so to that scene, to the, the, the mountain shaking violently, you add thunder and lightning and fire and smoke and, and trumpet blasts. That is an impressive scene. That is glory. That is the glory of God. It's a manifestation of, of his power and his magnitude. So when John talks about glory... That's some of the background of this. It gives us a picture of the immensity of what he's talking about. But then we see that the glory of Jesus is not overpowering like that. This isn't the earth shaking and and thunder and lightning and smoke and fire and all this stuff. It's the same magnitude of that glory. It's substantially the same. And yet it comes in this understated way. This way that that is, is going to be missed by many people. They're not going to understand that this actually is the glory of God. 
that Jesus himself is the one and only glorious son of God. But John testifies to the truth. No, Jesus really is the one and only. He really is the glorious one. He has the same glory that we see in Exodus 19 with the mountain shaking and fire and and, and the lightning and the thunder, everything else. He has that same glory in himself. And yet, it's glory that came down into this world that he created. And it is glory that is full of grace and truth. So Jesus is the the glorious one. He is the embodiment of all that God says he is. This is the other side of glory. When when Moses, one of the leaders of God in the Old Testament, asks God to see his glory, what God does is, is pronounce his name as he passes by Moses. He says, the Lord, the Lord, the gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And that same description finds its parallel here in Jesus. He is full of grace and truth. So the glory of Jesus has the same magnitude as that event in Exodus 19, and yet it's directed in such a a compassionate way. It's, It's grace and truth. It's reminding us that God is with us and God is for us. And that changes the story Because that shows us that that glory, the glory of full of grace and truth, the one and only Son, that's the glory that we need in our lives. So think again about our old friend Ebenezer Scrooge. He needs someone to step into his life and show him that he needs to change. And that's what happens with this apparition of Jacob Marley and the spirits. It gives him an opportunity to change. And he takes that opportunity and he changes his life. But here's the thing. We actually need a lot more than that. We need more than just a reminder that we should probably change our lives. Have you ever tried to change something in your life? Even a pretty small thing? It's difficult. Change isn't easy at all. At the end of October, I had a friend tell me that that he was going to use the month of November as a a healthy month. He was going to get after it. He was going to have lots of fruit and vegetables, less meat, no dessert, exercising five days a week. So he was talking about this, and I thought, you know what? That could be a really good thing. I, I, I'm going to do that, too. I was inspired to join him. Not the same, you know, the same level of that, but, but I, I decided, okay, I'm going to make an intentional effort in November to eat healthy and to exercise regularly. Now, for me, my worst eating habits occur after 8 p.m. Basically, once 8 p.m. hits, I, I want to have uh, cocoa and soda and chips and, and ice cream. That's all I want to do. I just want to gorge myself after 8 p.m. So I said, okay, for the month of November, the only snacks I'm going to eat are going to be vegetables and fruit. That's it. And I'm going to say no to soda, uh, no ice cream, nothing after 8 p.m. and all that. And I'm going to start exercising regularly. I'm going to run. I'm going to play hockey, all these kind of things. And, and I worked hard at it, and, and it worked pretty well. He would send me a text at like, you know, almost 9 p.m. He's like, I just ran for an hour. Your turn. I'm like, oh, my goodness. I don't want to run right now. I just want to go to bed or I want to have some ice cream. Okay, fine. So I strap on my shoes. I get on the treadmill. I, you know, crank out a couple miles. And it, and it was hard work. It wasn't easy at all, but, but I slogged through it. I, I, I worked hard, and, and to be honest, it felt great. Now, raise your hand if you think I'm still doing that. <laughs> no confidence at all. Unbelievable. Like, some of you are like, should I raise it? Do I look like I ate 10 cookies yesterday? Because I ate 10 cookies yesterday. Change is not easy. Change is a difficult thing. And to be honest, I, I want to see Scrooge a year later. 
I want to take an audit of his life a year after this great event and see, well, did he actually have lasting long-term change? Change is not an easy thing. And this is where Christmas is so much better than any story we can make up. Jesus moves into the neighborhood and he shows us what it means to be a true human. He shows us a better way. He shows us what it means to know God and to live in rich relationship with him and obedience and glory to him, finding life in God. But he doesn't do that and then say, hey, look, I can do it. Your turn. Try harder. You can do this. You got to turn your life around. He doesn't do that. He knows that we need more than that. So Jesus shows us by the, he shows us the glory of God by his life. This is what it means that God is gracious towards us, that he is truthful, that he is loving, that he is for us. And then he shows us that same glory of God's grace through his death and through his resurrection. Because as Pastor Nolan shared earlier, that's where this story is going. Christmas is leading to Good Friday and to Easter This whole story is pointing toward the glory of God's grace in Jesus. Jesus knows that just showing us the better way is not enough because he knows that every single one of us is going to fail at that. We can try hard, we can do okay for a season, but true lasting change, deep heart change that comes out in a transformed life is something that we cannot just conjure up in our own strength. Only the perfect son of God can do that. And so Jesus lives the perfect life that we could never live. And then he dies the death that we deserved so that everything wrong we've ever done in the past and everything wrong we are doing today and everything wrong we'll do in the future is forgiven and taken care of on the cross. And then he was raised from death to life to show that the powers of sin and darkness and death are defeated forever. So Jesus does perfectly what we could never do. And then he gifts us his perfection so that we can have life. See, the beauty and the glory of Christmas is that the message isn't just try harder. You can do this. The message is no, Jesus has done everything for you. This is why he came. He came to rescue. He came to redeem. Jesus not only shows us the better way, he perfectly fulfills the better way for us and opens then for us a new way of life. He gives us his spirit to confirm the truth of this message and to transform our hearts so that we can live changed lives. So Christmas can absolutely change your life, but it starts right here. It starts with us understanding in this profound way that God is for us. He has grace for us. He has love for us. He wants a relationship with us. He loves us. And listen, it doesn't matter if today is your very first day in church or if you've never missed a Sunday in your entire life. He is for you. Over the past couple of years, we keep coming back to the story that Jesus tells. He says, the shepherd had a hundred sheep and one of the sheep wandered off and went missing. And the shepherd, rather than just kind of shrugging his shoulders and say, well, 99% retention is pretty good, left the 99 sheep and went searching for that one lost sheep. And he kept searching for it until he found it. And when he found it, he rejoiced. He called a big party, got all of his friends together. Rejoice with me. I found my lost sheep. And Jesus says this. this, Here's what that means. There is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. That's how God feels about us, about each one of his created creatures. He doesn't see us as as Scrooges who need to be kind of 
kicked in the pants and, and moved along to try harder. But he sees us as his sons and daughters who have wandered far from him, who he loves and wants to bring back to himself, who need to be rescued. And that's why Jesus came. That's why the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us to rescue us, to redeem us, to show us the glory of God full of grace and truth. The word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood to bring us to God. Now this is good news for all of us. So I want to challenge you to to use this season to reflect on what this means, that God is for you. Fully God, the word, fully God, came down, became flesh, fully human for you, for your salvation, for your redemption, to bring you life. And if you don't know that the truth of that, I invite you to use this season to explore that and to find out, is this really true? We'd love to give you a little resource out here on the, um, the table here. If you go see the big green band that says, new here, start here. There's a stack of these books out here. They're called An Even Better Christmas. This is just a simple tool that you can use to try to find out, well, what is Jesus all about? What is Christmas all about? And this is good news not just for for us, but this is good news for everybody. So I want to challenge you to to not only use this season to reflect and to explore the goodness of God revealed in, in Jesus, but also then to share the joy of Jesus everywhere you go. Use this season as an opportunity to tell others the glories of Christ. You know, Sandy talked earlier about these invite cards. That's what these are for. This is a simple way for you to be able to invite someone to come find out more about what it means that Jesus has come, that the word of God became flesh. And our Christmas Eve service is, is going to be a special time for us to gather together as a church family. And we'll sing songs together. We'll, we'll light our sanctuary with candlelight in the end. We'll, we'll share a message of life transformation. This is a great opportunity to stop and to reflect on the goodness that is found in Jesus and what that means for us in our lives today. Now, there are something like nine days left before Christmas. And I realize that for some of us, that puts us into a panic. Even hearing that number starts to like raise our anxiety level. I want to challenge you. Instead of just busting it out, getting to the end of the season, let's spend some time this this week stopping, taking a breath, pausing and reflecting on what John is saying here. The word, fully God, became flesh, fully human, and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father himself, full of grace and truth. This is such good news for us. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you have sent your son to rescue, to redeem. God, we pray that that even this week, by the power of your spirit, you'd be confirming that the truth of this message in our hearts, you'd be opening our, our minds to the beauty of what's going on here, that we would grasp just a tiny piece even of the immensity of what it means that the word became flesh. God, I pray that you would help us to see that you are for us, that in your son we have salvation, redemption, rescue. Move us to life in him, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen.